lot to learn Well, don't think I'm trying not to learn Since this is the perfect spot to learn Teach me tonight Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 26, 2020. My name is James Marino, and on the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared online at Time Out New York, Playbill.com, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She has her own podcast, Spotlight, on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How's it going? It's very good. And you? So far, so good, but it's early on a Sunday, so the day is young. <laughs> it's a brisk, uh, beautiful Sunday morning in January here. We have been spared much terrible weather, as True. normally happens mm. in January. I, I mean, I'm waiting for us to get it. Uh, you know. Mother Nature is plotting something. We all know this. Exactly. It only rains mm-hmm. where, where uh, Catherine is. So. <laughs> That's, this, is this is true. Catherine is the rain bringer. She is. <laughs> also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So Peter is uh, away, but it doesn't prevent him from bringing the trivia. So let's uh, get Peter in here right now. So Peter, coming to us from St. Louis, uh, what are you doing there? Well, uh, Maggie Bofill, who was such a wonderful leading lady in my play, God Shows Up, is appearing in Mojada there, the play that was so good at the um, public theater earlier this season. So I'm really um, looking forward to seeing her. She doesn't even know I'm coming. I'm going to surprise her. But anyway, um, having seen my leading man in Albany in the full Monty and uh, the person who succeeded him in the role in Beverly and Sunset Boulevard, I make an effort to see the people who are in my shows. Oh, great. So do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Yeah. Two performers much associated with Broadway played the same role in a very famous musical. Ironically, the first one to play the role, one far more associated with it, didn't get a Tony for it. The second one did get a Tony for playing the same role, but not in the original production and not in a revival either. Who were the performers, the show, and how did it happen? Well, the answer is Annie Get Your Gun for which Ethel Merman did not receive a Tony because her show predated the awards by a season. Mm -hmm. But the next season, the Tonys began. And because Mary Martin had taken the show on the road, she was awarded a Tony just for doing that. So Greg Christensen was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner and Brigadoon. And what of Tony Janicki? As the opening line of the title song of She Loves Me goes... Well, 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 well. <laughs> he suggested the Robert Bridegroom because the first production did get to Broadway with Kevin Klein, who didn't receive a Tony, while a year later the production returned to Broadway and was labeled a return engagement rather than a revival. And Barry Bostwick won the Tony. Yeah, sure, but the Robert Bridegroom doesn't qualify as a very famous musical, and people don't associate Kevin Klein in the role. So then he guessed Peter Pan. In 1950, Boris Karloff did not win a Tony as Captain Hook and Mr. Darling, and then in 1954, Sir Richard was in those roles, and he did win. Yeah, but remember I said that the first one to play the role was the one far more associated with it. And you can't say that Karloff was, not with all those TV appearances that Richard made in the role. And besides, 
I said role, not roles, which Captain <laughs> Hook and Mr. Darling are. So that he guessed me and my girl with Lupino Lane, who didn't win a Tony, and Robert Lindsay, who did. But Lane made three Broadway appearances and Lindsay only one. So we can't call them two performers much associated with Broadway. And then after that, Tony Janicki said the hell with it. <laughs> this week's question. An 11 o'clock number in a currently running Broadway musical includes a two line lyric that just happens to comment on an upcoming show that'll soon play four blocks away. What's the lyric, the song, the show it's from, and what show is it inadvertently commenting on? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So things to remind you of uh, this week. On Tuesday is the final question mark uh, of Robbie Rozelle's Tuesdays at 54 Below. And uh, as far as I can tell, it is selling briskly. So if you have not gotten a ticket, you should do that immediately, mm-hmm. immediately, because you might not be able to get in uh, if you do not make your plans to get over to 54 Below on Tuesday to see Robbie's final show. And both of you have seen it, right? Oh, yes. Oh, uh, yes. I, yeah. I have missed two of them since the uh, the series began. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're a completist. Excellent. It's, well, not all. I mean, not totally complete. I still miss two of them, but still, it's such a fun show. I figured I would catch it now and then and just enjoyed it so much. I kept going back. It was... It's a ton of fun. Robbie, uh, you know, as everybody knows, we adore Robbie here at Broadway Radio. And um, and these Tuesday, Tuesdays at 54 Below have been uh, – I, I cannot say I have heard – Nary a dissent. The only dissent that I'm hearing is that it's ending on Tuesday. So get over mm-hmm. and see it. Uh, also, we have to wish a happy, happy, happy birthday to Celia Keenan-Bolger, don't we, Michael? Yes. I, Facebook tells me that today is Celia's birthday. So thank <laughs> Facebook for telling me that. And Michael, you have a new doctor. Yes, I have a, a hopefully amusing story. I uh, my longtime doctor is not retiring, but paring down his practice greatly, and so I had to find a new one. And I thought I would go through the Friedman Center. Uh, I don't know if you've all heard mm-hmm. of it. It's a, a new um, it's a health center affiliated through the Actors Fund, and I thought, well, I might as well start there. And so I went online and saw that they had a number of doctors on site. Uh, they're in. Uh, se- well, the, the, this office is Seventh uh, Avenue and like Forty Ninth Street, um, and so I saw the names and I sort of picked one at random of this one doctor. And then a few days later, I was talking to a friend of mine saying I was going to see uh, a new doctor, and and um, turns out that she and her son already go to him. So I said, well, that's a good sign. Um, so then I went and he seemed really great during the, uh, the initial meeting. It seemed like he'd really done his research and knew the major points about me and et cetera, et cetera. And um, then we were started talking about theater a little bit <laughs> because he goes all the time. And he was, you know, the usual complaints about the ticket prices, et cetera. And, <laughs> and what have you seen and blah, blah, blah. And we were talking about West Side Story and how he wanted, he really wanted to see that. And he said, but they're all getting injured. Uh, so he was concerned about that. And then, um, 
then he said, uh, really towards the end of the meeting, he said, uh, don't you do a podcast for Broadway radio? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) And I said, well, yes, I do. And he said, uh, I listen to it religiously and I often agree with you. Uh And I said, I said, doctor, I will take often. (laughs) (laughs) Lately, (laughs) it's usually not anywhere near that. Um, So isn't that little, little funny? Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, That's That's awesome. Very nice. Uh, Yeah. So uh, we'll have to see how an agreement everybody is after a West Side Story opens. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, I, well, I, think one thing we can be sure about is that there will be no agreement uh, because now, you know, it seems n- nobody agrees on anything. And, and, and especially when something is so, um, so much of a, a concept and a vision and so different. Controversial. I'm sure, be, I'm sure yeah. the opinions will be all over the place. So uh, yesterday, Saturday, we got this sad news that uh, Broadway producer Margaret Lyon, Lyon had passed away. She was yeah. the producer for Hairspray, Angels in America, uh, uh, somebody who, you know, really dedicated her life to the theater. And I, I don't know if this is folklore, if this is true. She she mortgaged her apartment <laughs> to uh, finance Hairspray. Did you guys, you guys hear that? No. That yeah. was in, well, it was in the obit. It said actually that she did it several times for several different shows. Yeah. I mean, to that. Put it that, up, put it up as collateral. I guess that would be mortgaging, right? Is that the same thing? Uh, sort of. Putting it up as collateral is uh, the promise to repay if yeah. all goes south. But I, I had thought that she actually took a mortgage out to pay for uh, some of the development of hairspray, but uh, she was 75 years old and just uh, just a, a force of nature. I mean, the the stories that are being told, uh, Jennifer Ashley Tepper told a great story, and Harvey Firestein and Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman and everybody who has been touched by Margot's life had just such wonderful stories about her. Uh, and... Um, it's absolutely incredible. Her producing credits were uh, included Jelly's Last GM, Angels in America, as I uh, mentioned, Angel- Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Oh, my goodness. Carolina Change, wow. Radio Gold, Seven Guitars. So, I mean, just if you've seen the greats on Broadway, you somehow have been seeing the work of Margot Lyon. So. I only had the pleasure of meeting and speaking with her a few times very briefly, but I do remember that hearing, uh, even before I met her, that she had just a stellar reputation as far as being so classy and so nice, uh, (laughs) which are not necessarily, uh, I mean, I I think it's for, for obvious reasons, it's difficult for a producer to be kind of universally beloved Um, and because they have to make so many decisions and deal with so many people and disappoint so many people, but somehow she really seemed to manage it. Uh, And Hairspray was a terrific triumph for her. Obviously I remember also uh, giving her a lot of props uh, for the way she was so behind the wedding singer Mm. which was a show that I absolutely loved. And to this day, 
I do not know why it wasn't a huge hit. Uh, so I felt bad that it wasn't a hit, but I remember how how tireless she was at the time in in just trying to keep it going and trying to make it into a hit. And even though that didn't work out, I it just that was seemed to be typical of her her belief in in things and her passion. So. Yes, rest in peace to Margot Lyon. She really was one of the greats. So I wanted to uh, move on. And before we move on into reviews, I want to uh, mention that uh, the podcast, Welcome to the Rock, is an eight-part series, a podcast with interviews from behind the scenes of the creation of the global musical hit was uh, produced by our friends at Curtain Call in the UK and that uh, they are sponsoring us this week and so I want you to take a listen to all eight parts if you go to CFA like come from away pod P-O-D CFA pod.com you can listen to all eight episodes of Welcome to the Rock and if you're a fan of come from away and who isn't you're going to really find a lot of these interviews tremendously interesting all right so we'll move forward into our first review of the morning jenna and michael both got to see a soldier's play so uh jenna why don't you get us started off on this uh broadway opening sure so yes it's a very exciting broadway opening the play had run off broadway nearly uh 40 years ago uh charles fuller's play won the pulitzer prize uh and somehow this production manages to feel both painfully timely and tragically of its time, uh, all at the same time. Uh, so the play takes the shape of a murder mystery set on a Louisiana military base in 1944. Uh, a black technical sergeant, uh, Waters, played by David Allen Greer, is shot to death, and a black military lawyer, Captain Davenport, played by Blair Underwood, is sent to investigate the crime. And as he conducts his investigation, he encounters all the racism one would expect in Louisiana in 1944, but he also gets to see how much his rank and his accomplishments mean to the other Black enlisted soldiers at the base. Uh, The murder is really a MacGuffin in the play. Uh, And honestly, to me at least, it was one of the least interesting parts of the story. Mm -hmm. The real meat here is the class, uh, the race relations uh, and the rank relations. Uh, One of the first men Davenport interviews as part of his investigation very calmly points out and just states, as a matter of fact, with almost no emotion, that the local clan could not be responsible for this killing because Waters was found with his insignia still on his uniform. And he says in the line that made me hiss almost in surprise, well, they usually take the stripes and stuff off of us before they lynch us. It's a terrifying world in which the soldiers are expected to protect the very people who would lynch them. And the moments that remind us of that are some of the most powerful in the play. Uh, A lot of the play unfolds in uh, flashbacks uh, to the way the dead man interacted with the men beneath him in rank. And these are also a lot more interesting than the murder mystery. We see the way the different men have learned to live with the systemic endemic racism that has shaped their lives and how in some cases they've learned to hate one another 
rather than work together because it's easier to hate each other than to hate the oppressors. Mm. Uh, it is chilling and it is disturbing and it is powerful. And it's frankly those scenes that remind us why the play won the Pulitzer. Uh, the cast does some wonderful work. Uh, Blair Underwood gives a very, very good performance as a military man who really has to fight for the respect that he is owed, but so rarely gets. And his chemistry with the other actors is really fascinating to watch. Uh, Davenport outranks at least one white man who we see, and he is of equal rank with two others. He outranks all of the other black men in the story. And seeing how he interacts with the white men, none of whom is a superior officer, but all of whom are racist, and then how he interacts with the black men is just brilliant to watch. And those scenes are just spectacular. I can't say enough good things about them. Uh, David Allen Greer is really chilling as Waters, a character who is so filled with rage, he's started turning it on the very people that he could be helping. Uh, Greer obviously made his name as a comedian, and he plays the role with a lot of, I'm trying to think of the right word, uh, I, I could only describe it as toxic joviality. He frequently has a smile on his face that just twists into a sneer, and it's never far from becoming a sneer. Uh, it's somehow so much more disconcerting to see a sadist with a smile than to see one who's constantly snarling. And I really thought he played that dichotomy very, very well. Uh, Jerry O'Connell, who is also primarily known as a comic actor, does some very nice work as the captain with whom Davenport has to work during the, the investigation. Um, and he really does a nice job of making us see the casual racism of the time that uh, this is you know, maybe not a member of the Klan, but he certainly is uncomfortable with the idea of having to speak to a black captain as an equal as the military would expect. Uh, he's not presented as the bad guy. He is the white guy who needs to learn a very important lesson by the end of the play. And you know we've all seen so many of those stories, but he's also not the white savior, which I so appreciated. I was really afraid he would turn out to be a white savior trope. Uh, O'Connell handles the somewhat cliched role very well, even if it is written as somewhat one note. Uh, Kenny Leon's direction really takes its time building up the tension, and he does a very nice job showing how the different men of different backgrounds and different rank interact with one another. Though one thing I found annoying, I guess is the right word about this production, was the very obvious fan service of the shirtless men in several mm -hmm. scenes. I mean, if it served the story, it's fine, but it doesn't. And the audience reaction was like a high school's. People are shouting and cheering and disrupting the play. The actors had to stop uh, at several points so the audience could shout and cheer. And this is a murder mystery. This is a study on class relations. This is a somber and serious. There's absolutely nothing wrong with fan service unless it's shoved awkwardly into the middle of a serious drama about racism and violence. Um, it, it really bothered me, and especially given the audience reaction, I, I rather hope it's either toned down or removed. Um, it, it seems rather appropriate to revive the play today. I did some quick math. When the play premiered, only 37 years had passed from the year in which it was set, and it has been 39 years since the play premiered. 
And it's really fascinating to think how much has changed between 1944 and 1981, and then how much has changed between 1981 and today, and how much has not changed at all. Uh, this is a thought-provoking piece. It's It has some moments that are clearly of its time, but it is also... Uh, like I keep saying, it is thought-provoking, it is fascinating, and it gives some very talented actors some great material to work with. So definitely recommended. All right, Michael, what do you think? Uh, Jenna, what was that term? Did you say man service? Oh, fan service. Fan service. Yes. Oh, just in general, meaning things that uh, are are likely to provoke a audible reaction in the no, fan. Not necessarily an audible reaction, but it's like an early example would be um, um, Marilyn Monroe in the River of No Return and. Hey, lean over and get me the rope. And she leans over in a very low cut blouse to pick something up. <laughs> but, Fan uh, service. But it, does it specifically involve uh, some kind of uh, either display of flesh or some yes. kind of set? Oh, okay. I just Generally. never heard it before. Oh, really? And you know, uh, yeah, I learned, I also learned from you the word uh, incel. Oh, yes. So every time we, t we speak, I learn a word from you. And I uh, think it's great. <laughs> Mom, Dad, my English degree is actually worth something. Yes. I told well, you it would come in handy. I appreciate it. I do. Um, I agree with you on every word you said. Well, almost every word. I, uh, uh, the thing about the murder being almost a MacGuffin, when I was watching the play again i was reminded that that is the case it's it, it reminded me sort of of agnes of god mm. where um it's not really about it, it's the plays are constructed as murder mysteries but when the when the mystery unravels finally it's not as if it's some shocking uh Thing that you haven't already thought might be the case. So it's really not primarily about that. They're, I guess they're character studies. Exactly. Both of these plays. And it is a wonderful play, and it, I'm not surprised that, it's, that it has lasted. I did not see the original production, but I saw one actually in 2005 at Second Stage with, did you, did you guys see this, with Tay Diggs, James McDaniel, Anthony Mackie, and Stephen Pasquale. Wow. And that was directed by Joe Bonney. Uh, and actually, I, uh, I'll get to it in a moment. I, prefer, I think I prefer that one overall. This one I had some wow. pretty major problems with. Uh, but the fact that it keeps being done, I have never seen the movie, which is, for obvious reasons, retitled A Soldier's Story. Uh, I would like to catch up with that at some point and see how they opened it up and, and how that was done. But I also appreciate the fact that uh, it being, keeps being revived to remind us uh, or, or to teach those of us who didn't already know it what the situation was during World War II as, as far mm -hmm. as segregation in the armed forces. I always, as I've said before, I, um, you know, colorblind casting, et cetera, obviously is a noble goal overall, but, but when it is done in specific cases of period pieces that, uh, depict a, a specific milieu, sometimes I do wonder that and, and fear 
that it's rewriting history in a way. And I can't think of anything specific at the moment, but I have seen a few uh, examples of that where it where perhaps uh, it was indicated that this was not how black people were treated during World War II in the armed forces. I uh, remember admiring how it was dealt with in the last revival of South Pacific at Lincoln Center, uh, where very subtly they had uh, some of the African-American cast members just very much physically segregated from the rest of the guys, even in like the nothing like a Dame number. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's really important. And here, of course, the play is specifically about that. So they weren't going to, they weren't going to do any colorblind casting in this one and, and, uh, and, you know, mix up the, the, uh, casting in that term. But, uh, it's, it's really kind of incredible when you think that these people were serving their country and yet they were still being treated as second class citizens mm-hmm. and uh, and especially in this case cuz we're told that this uh, these guys are stationed in the south somewhere so it's even worse for them and that's why there's such a thought that perhaps the uh the clan might be involved and i guess that that turns out to be well well i won't say anymore because we mm-hmm. want to spoil whatever whatever is uh the the mystery here um i yeah i am not a uh, a big fan of of kenny leon unfortunately uh and i noticed a few things here right from the beginning uh it's i believe that music and singing has been added to this production i'm not sure uh the extent of it or if there was uh, if there's just more now than there used to be, uh, or if there didn't used to be any, but it's there's quite a few um, moments where the where the guys are singing, and then there's also a couple of moments of choreography, which I have to say um, just really didn't seem to work uh, to me in the context of this basically ultra ultra realistic play. Uh, I'm not sure what they were going for there. Um, and I think the audience seemed a little confused by it also. Uh, so, but anyway, at the beginning, there's, we hear singing, the lights go out, we hear singing, and then suddenly we smell smoke. And a lot of smoke is being pumped into the theater. And it turns out, uh, it took me a while to figure out why that was even there and what it was supposed to be. And then it's mentioned that these guys are, um, I forget the term that they use, but they're they're making... Um, uh, they're dealing with chemicals, and uh, this is what their job is. And I guess that's supposed to be the smoke that is the product of that. But, um, you know, I mean, fine, except what happened in my performance is that several people in the audience started coughing. <laughs> um, and also it was a little scary because the this, this smoke was enveloping you while you were in blackout at first. Uh, the, the lights went out and then there was suddenly all this smoke and then lights came up very slowly and uh, the guys were singing and people in the audience were coughing. Um, fortunately, it dissipated very quickly. So I just don't think that that effect was worth it. Uh, 
especially not given the distraction of the coughing of the audience and and uh, and the fact that, that so many of the audience were being taken out of the play because they didn't know what was happening and this in the very first seconds of it um so i think that that is the kind of thing that a maybe a better director would not have done um the uh the very first piece of dialogue that we hear is a flashback to the murder of the David Allen Greer character. And I thought because of the way that was staged, that it was unclear uh, where it was supposed to be happening. Uh, it seemed to me that it was supposed to be happening in the barracks, which turns out not to be true. And so later on when they said otherwise, I was confused by that. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, the, the, uh, fan service thing. Thank you for teaching me that. Um, I think, uh, well, certainly the, the worst example of it could easily have been eliminated because the worst example of it is at the very start of act two where, uh, um, where I'm, excuse me, where Blair Underwood, uh, is, entering from off stage while while shirtless and then he puts on his shirt while standing there talking to the audience but clearly i mean obviously that could have been easily solved by having him already had it have it on or partly on uh so i don't know why i i i you know <laughs> i'm sure that i can only imagine that that reaction has been there for every performance or almost every performance and it would seem to me that a director might have said it's guys it's just not worth it um blair please leave your shirt on <laughs> yeah. uh, now there are other places where um uh it would have been more difficult but um uh, there, there's a, a scene uh, earlier in early, early on, fairly early on, in, uh, or I guess about halfway through Act One, where a bunch of the guys are shirtless, and uh, the there was certainly there were literally cat calls from uh, the audience, from and especially some people in my section. So I. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess maybe the the actors appreciate it on some level, being given that, uh, you know, that positive reinforcement of their physiques. But it really uh, took, again, it took everyone out of the play, I think. Um, this yeah. one guy in particular, Rob Demery, who plays Cobb, I mean, it's, it's just it's a spectacular body. And some woman behind me was very vocal about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I, I just really question that. So I, I don't know that um, some of these decisions by Kenny Leon were, were that great. Um, David Allen Greer, I was fascinated by his performance. At first, I wasn't sure that I liked it and I didn't know what he was doing. He did play that, um, that uh, Jenna referred to it, uh, how would you go, like a forced jocularity. He speaks, uh, he makes the character speak with the rhythms of a, of a comedian. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure it was, it was, going to work and 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 also i will say that it seemed like in the beginning that confused the audience as well because they didn't know 
the play. Uh, I mean, a lot of them didn't know the play, and they do know David Allen Greer primarily as a comic performer. But um, as the play went on, I think that it actually lent even more power to his performance, that this is how this fellow um, deals with other people, and this is how he... Uh, this is the the um, the veneer he's developed uh, to talk to talk with others. I don't think anyone uh, uh, the I don't think anyone else I've seen do this role has made that choice. But I thought it was a controversial choice, but it worked out really well. Uh, Blair Underwood, I was not as happy with. I thought he seemed very stiff in various moments. Although it's hard to, uh, I mean, it, it, I hasten to say that the character is. Uh, is, that's true of the character to a large extent. He's very buttoned down and uh, is very conscious of his position as a as a black officer. Um, Jerry O'Connell's uh, character says more than once that uh, that this is the first black officer he has ever met, encountered, and he is kind of incredulous that such a thing even exists. So um, I think it is, a, a, again, a, a very well-written play, and I'm glad that uh, Roundabout chose it. I think it's important to, again, to do these period pieces that deal with uh, the way things were then and show uh, so, so that we can see how far we have come in some ways, while in other ways just remaining exactly where we were. And that's the power of a soldier's play, I think. All right. So a uh, soldier's play is at Roundabout Theater Company's American Airlines Theater. It's uh, through March 15th, limited engagement, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. This week on Broadway is being brought to you by our friends at ExpressVPN. Some of you may not know what a VPN is. It stands for Virtual Private Network. There are many reasons to use a VPN, but I want to talk about two that I believe are most important to you, the listener. The first reason to use ExpressVPN is security. If you're connected to a public Wi-Fi network at a hotel, an airport, a coffee shop, wherever, there are no way to know how secure this network is. It could be 100% secure, or it could be very insecure and showing all of your personal information. If you use ExpressVPN on any of your devices, a laptop, phone, tablets, whatever, this will prevent anyone else from seeing your personal info. The second reason to use ExpressVPN, it can change your location so you can view services that are restricted by location. Like, uh, say, you, if you want to watch the BBC or NT Live from the U.S., you can use ExpressVPN to make uh, them think that you are in the U.K. and vice versa. If you are in another part of the world and want to view PBS great performances, use ExpressVPN to connect to PBS.org. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. Don't let technology stop you from getting in your Sondheim fix. ExpressVPN is lightning fast and you will not have any buffering issues that you have in other VPN services. So if you want to visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio. Michael, you got a chance to get down to ART New York uh, to see Romeo and Bernadette. So uh, tell us about this uh, new, is it a new musical or is it? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, 
I it's not as new as I thought it was. It yeah. apparently was done in a previous form at Paper Mill uh, some years ago. Uh, and Andy Carl was in it at the time. Uh, this is book and lyrics by Mark Saltzman. And it's an utterly delightful kind of riff on Romeo and Juliet. It's uh, uh, what happens if, if somehow the potion that Romeo took uh, at the end of the play didn't kill him, but just put him in a state of suspended animation for several hundred years. And then he winds up being revived um, in our own time. And somehow um, uh, he's revived in Verona and he meets, uh, there's a group of tourists there uh, as I was a tourist in Verona just a few months ago. <laughs> uh, and among them is a, a, a beautiful young woman from Brooklyn and her name is Bernadette and he falls in love with her and sees her as the reincarnation of his Juliet who is in fact dead uh, so he wa he makes his way to Brooklyn and it's all a culture clash uh, kind of story about how he uh, this guy who speaks in iambic pentameter uh, and uh, has the mindset of the Renaissance uh, gets assimilated or not into the Brooklyn of uh, well actually I, I said um, uh, I, I said present day but it's supposed to be uh, 1960 uh, so not quite present day uh, and he uh, there, there are predictable jokes about him learning to speak like a Guido, if I can use that word, a Brooklyn Guido of the 60s. And he falls in with um, uh, a, a guy who is trying to help him, uh, who becomes a really good friend. But then there's also complications with involving the mob. Uh, there's a lot of stereotypes and tropes in this, but I mean, that's the whole point of the of the piece is that it's uh, it's a spoof and it's very, very um, my, my only problem with it was that it is very lighthearted until uh, towards the end where I think it, it got too heavy handed. They actually are guns in it um, and they, they're never shot, but I mean, there are guns that look more or less realistic and there's some, uh, cartoon violence in it and when it starts to deal with the mob element uh it, it just i i got a little uncomfortable i think that they made a miscalculation in um letting it get a little too heavy at the end but until then it was absolutely utterly and completely delightful uh directed and choreographed by justin ross cohen again book and lyrics by mark saltzman you'll notice i haven't mentioned a music credit and that's because what mark saltzman has done is written really excellent delightful clever funny sweet new english lyrics to very old italian songs uh including a song uh one of the the big hits in this <laughs> that's heard several times and it recurs uh, several times because the melody is so beautiful is a song called caro mio ben by giordani tommaso giordani and that is a very old song that i remember working on in 
college in my singing class. Hmm. It's, uh, it's an art song. And then there are several others uh, from several hundred years uh, of, of Italian songs. But, but I think maybe the most recent one is probably a, a hundred years old or so. Uh, songs by De Curtis uh, and Tosti. And you're sure to recognize several of the melodies. Uh, they don't use any actual opera uh, it's all uh, non-operatic Italian art songs, but they're, the melodies are so beautiful, and and I can't I can't emphasize too much how excellent these lyrics are. I I hope um, that Peter gets to see this if he hasn't already. I think he will be very very pleased. I I noticed wonderful rhymes, no false rhymes. I didn't notice any missed accents uh just just stellar stellar lyric writing all around and i think that mark salzman on the basis of this is an extremely talented person so um i highly recommend that you take in this show it was I, I wasn't sure how it was going to go because uh, when you hear what the concept is i guess maybe you would think it sounds like, well, this could either be really sweet and funny or it could be silly and nonsensical. But it was uh, the former. It was really very delightful. Uh, I have to single out that the entire cast was amazing. Um, Judy McLean, uh, who I have not seen in a while, was brilliant uh, in a supporting role uh, as this uh, this Brooklyn Italian matron, and I don't know. I mean, I didn't look up her history. I I, I don't know if she has any Italian American in her background, but her <laughs> her Brooklyn Italian accent of 1960 was just phenomenal, as far as I was concerned. Um, everyone was really great. Uh, but the guy who played Romeo, Nikita Burstein, is just, I don't know where they found him. Um, well, actually, I do know where they found him. They found him on the West Coast, which is where uh, Justin Ross Cohen is based, uh, I believe. And I, I don't know the specifics of how they found him, but they might, this role might have been written for this guy. Uh, when he speaks... Um, as Romeo in for much of the play, he has a wonderful resonant voice and he speaks uh, the, the rhyme couplets and the iambic pentameter. And he sounds like he, you know, he might as well have gone to Rade, just just really great facility and talent with that kind of classical speech. And then every now and then um, <laughs> he throws in a line where he talks like this and the audience just goes hilarious. But on top of all that, uh, he's just a really, really great looking guy. And one of the most beautiful tenor voices that I've heard that it's perfect for this kind of music uh there again he might have been born to sing these songs so everyone um that has been assembled for this is just great ari raskin michael notar donato michael morata uh and the the rest of the cast just very well done. It's not um, not much of a production in terms of sets, uh, I would say bare bones, but 
it's not about that. It's just about the very clever concept and so so brilliantly executed and so so hilariously done. And uh, it could have, as I said, I think it could have easily gone the other way. And I'm glad it didn't. I would very much advise everyone to check it out. All right. So Romeo and Bernadette is playing at ART New York on 53rd Street uh, through February 16th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Broadway Radio is being brought to you today by listeners like you. Patrons who support us at patreon.com slash broadwayradio. That is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. When you sign up and support Broadway Radio, you will get the benefit of early access to our broadcasts before anyone else. Financial support for Broadway Radio will help us continue to bring our broadcasts through 2020 and beyond. Once again, that is Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio to become a sporter. So next up, uh, Jenna, you got a chance to see the woman in black over at the McKittrick uh, Hotel. I this, did. This uh, long-running play uh, thriller from the West End. Have you seen it in London? I have not. I had never seen it before, although I loved the book and I really enjoyed the 2012 movie. The the Daniel uh, Radcliffe movie. Yes. Yes. So tell us uh, what's happening over at the McKittrick uh, a lot, obviously. There, every space is just filled with something going on. I mean, you've got Sleep No More. You've got, um, oh, what's this, uh, Speakeasy Magic. I mean, how many rooms does the place have? Never mind. I mean, I think yeah. that's part of the fun is not knowing how many rooms the place has. But any case, uh, yeah, so that seems to be like the Mickey gig, telling horror stories and magic and everything involving supernatural, creepy, which kind of fun to have a venue like that in the city. Um, it's, as I was watching the show, I was thinking how difficult it is to tell an effective horror story on stage because unlike books or movies, it is so much harder to control what a, what a reader or audience member sees or hears. You can't focus the camera on one particular scary thing or use CGI or in terms of a book, uh, use very well-chosen words to describe it. You can use lighting and you've got sound effects and you can do cool special effects and you can get some jump scares. You can certainly build up a slow sense of dread, but I think it really is a lot more challenging when you're in the same room and you know it's all an illusion. You don't get the same the same sense that you have with books or with film. Um, so, the Woman in Black was adapted by Stephen. I'm going to butcher this name. Please forgive me, Stephen uh, Malatrat from Susan Hill's novel of the same name. Uh, it already has a few challenges to overcome just by its very nature. Uh, the play is, as you mentioned, it's the second longest running play in the history of the West End, uh, succeeded only by The Mousetrap. Uh, it's presented as a memory piece written by Arthur Kipps about a supernatural encounter from years before. And he is planning to read his memory uh, to an audience of family and friends. And before this reading, he hires an actor to help him make the narrative more compelling so the actor ultimately winds up playing Kipps himself while Kipps plays nearly everyone else in the story. And there's an exception to that that I don't want to spoil. Um, but that concept also makes things a little confusing in terms of uh, crediting who's playing whom because Ben Porter, who plays Kipps, is credited as the actor while David Acton, who plays the actor that Kipps hires, is credited as Kipps. So I... I 
was nearly writing this review crediting the wrong actor for the wrong role and please forgive me if I screwed any of that up. In any case, uh, the very first UK production of the show was apparently performed in a pub. So the McKittrick Hotel club car serves that function here and also serves some very nice British fare for the Anglophiles to try. Uh, director Robin Herford, who directed the original production many, many years ago, does a very nice job of creating a space that's initially warm and soothing and inviting as a cheerful English pub can be on a cold day. And then the space just gets progressively sinister as we learn more about Kipps's encounter. Uh, Hill's book is scary because she builds the tension very slowly, letting the characters get under our skin. Uh, Malachat's adaptation relies a lot on jump scares. And I think it's a detriment to the overall experience. Uh, doors slam suddenly. People appear from quick blackouts where they hadn't been before. And it's all designed to make a scream and jump. But the problem is that a normal reaction to a jump scare is often to start giggling once it's done. <laughs> and so you'll have a very creepy moment and then people are laughing and it ruins the mood. Um and another problem is the very nature of having the play in a real functioning pub, because there's something that people tend to do in pubs, and it doesn't make them the best audience members, shall we say. <laughs> um, at, at the performance I attended, uh, what someone in the audience decided to start behaving as though this were Rocky Horror and started calling out to the stage. Oh, no. Oh, yes. And you know, people immediately began shushing him, but he thought this was funny and kept calling things out. Uh, Kips wakes up from a nightmare, and the guy suddenly yells out, Hey, good morning! And I, I wanted to dump what was left of my very nice English ale over his head. That's <laughs> um, alcohol other, abuse, Jenna. Uh, true, true. But um, you know, another person got up and walked out, you know, presumably to go to the bathroom. But the it's a hardwood floor, and so suddenly there are loud heels uh, clacking on this hardwood floor. And a lot of the eerie mood, I'll get to that in a minute, is generated by the sound effects. So footsteps, uh, hearing footsteps at the wrong time, again, it doesn't create, it doesn't fit the mood of the story. Uh, so that was, to me, a real detriment. And again, circling back to what we were saying before about audience behavior ruining the moment of, uh, of a show and something that the creative team doesn't have a lot of control over. Um, the play is still a lot of fun, and I hope it comes back You know, for Halloween. It's perfect for Halloween. Uh, the two actors, uh, David Acton and Ben Porter, they work very well together. And terrific chemistry. Uh, Porter is especially adept at playing first uh, a character learning how to act, and then suddenly playing a range of characters and switching from one to the other at moments instantly. Uh, the play had to pause at one moment as he switched from playing Arthur Kipps, remembering his story, to playing one of the characters uh, in the story. And he does this on a split second. And you, there's, I don't think there's even a lighting change. It's just him suddenly shifting his voice and body. And now he's another person. And the audience cheered. It was a wonderful moment, a, a moment when the audience reaction helped, uh, helped build that moment, just to see him switch so effortlessly. That was beautiful. Um, 
Michael Holt's design uh, and Schumann's Batia lighting design, Imogene Finlayson's vision production, and I'm not totally sure what that is or how it works with the lighting and the set, uh, Sebastian Frost's sound design, uh, apparently, which was based on Rod Mead's original sound design. They all work very well together to create the mood and generate some surprises. Uh, really beautiful work for a very small space, intimate space. Um, and those are some of the most fun elements of the show. Just watching what appears to be an empty stage slowly reveal an increasingly detailed set and to very good dramatic effect. Um, it, it, and one more complaint about the venue. I feel like I need to say this. Uh, the club car and I think several other venues at the McKittrick are only accessible by elevator. And when I arrived, I was told I had to check my coat. I could not bring it in with me. So this meant after the play was over, almost the entire audience had to wait to collect their coats. Mm. And then we all had to wait to get on an elevator, which can only take a few people at a time. So it, by my count, it took more than 20 minutes to leave the space after the play ended. And this was just really frustrating. And I suddenly began thinking about fire hazards um, and a lot of other issues that could come from this. I mean, people have trains to catch, especially if they don't live locally. Uh, I really hope the venue will open up some more stairwells and make it easier for audience members to leave once a performance is over. Obviously, when the weather is better, people don't need to check their coats. But still, when you've only got a few small elevators, waiting in line for a long time to get out can get really aggravating. Mm -hmm. uh, so something I hope they'll reconsider. In the meantime, the show is a lot of fun. Uh, it does have some fun jump scares if jump scares are your thing. Um, but I, I also hope people will read the original novel, which did not rely on jump scares. It just creates an atmosphere that gets under your skin and to very good effect. So it's certainly fun, enjoyable, and again, recommended. In regard to your statement about the behavior, have you guys seen somebody sent me um, a friend of mine is in L.A. and he went to the movies and there was a listing of, you know, all of the the movies on the on the board in the theater and one of them said cats rowdy screening oh gosh <laughs> so <laughs> apparently they are setting aside i mean it probably happens anyway uh certain screenings for people to go and be rocky horror ish and yell things at the screen and sing along and and just generally behave like kids <laughs> and you know I'd be fine with that as long as that's what everyone is there for. Right. Well, so my point being that at yeah. least they're, they're making the effort to designate yes. uh, certain screenings. Sure. As, as rowdy uh, where, you know, but it's uh, isn't that amazing? That yeah. How long has it taken cats to do that? Uh, you know, it's uh, not that long. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish PBS great performances would do that. <laughs> it's just, it, it's, Record a rowdy performance? Yeah, exactly. So, no. So, I mean, you know, every time I watch great performances, there's always people yelling and hooting and hollering and things like that. <laughs> you so, know that PBS crowd. That Masterpiece PBS crowd. theater, yeah. 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 They get crazy. Venn diagram. They're like, uh, <laughs> especially with the, uh, uh, you know, Downton Abbey fans. 
Oh, I mean, please, you have you heard us screaming at the screen? No, Co- Matthew, don't Cousin do Matthew, cousin Matthew, don't <laughs> get in the car, cousin Matthew. Oh. <laughs> don't go for the drive, cousin Matthew. He's coming back, isn't he? He's coming back to the yes. theater. Yes, yeah. he's coming back to Hangman. Yeah. Hangman. So cousin, cousin Matthew is back. <laughs> he yes. lives. He lives. It was just a dream. It was like Dallas all over again. <laughs> Honestly, when I saw that episode, I thought, okay, the next episode has to be him sitting up and saying, well, that could have been so much worse. Mm. <laughs> and, oh, uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched Downton Abbey, but um, you're late if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, that's uh, four years or so. Yeah, sorry. sorry yeah, statute of limitations sorry has expired. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, um, let's see, uh, the Titanic sinks and... Uh, it's his mother, and uh, <laughs> Vader is, oh, Luke's, and Vader father. is Luke's father. father. Yeah, exactly. You're welcome. We're still not sure about the child in Mandalorian, though. Is it I, actually Yoda or not? You know? All right. I haven't so, seen a single episode of that the one. The Mandalorian. So. I love the Mandalorian. Look, I'm already paying oh, for Hulu. Man. I'm paying for Netflix. I'm paying for... for, for uh, uh, you are a... Uh, Top tier <laughs> journalist, you should be getting them giving you those services for free so you can review them. That's here, true. Here. Hey, Disney, yeah. want to give me some uh, a free sign up? I'd appreciate Disney it. Disney and free. That's clever. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> there <laughs> Disney. <laughs> Let it go. Let it go. Yeah, true. <laughs> All right. So that's the Woman in Black, which is interesting because it's playing a limited engagement through March 8th. So they've chosen January, February, and March, which is typically not the strongest uh, theater ticket selling season so i wonder if uh if it'll extend into the more lucrative uh april may and june but we'll hope have to see about that yeah yeah i hope it does i mean it's it, a new york times critic pick they yeah. really loved it oh yeah and again i don't want to suggest that it isn't a good time no, but sure. i was expecting well I don't say expecting. I wasn't sure what to expect because sure. what is literary, what is cinematic is not necessarily what is theatrical. And like I said at the top of my review, uh, presenting that kind of story on a stage already presents a creative team with a lot more challenges. Um, but I, it's not like I didn't have a good time at it. It was just not the same as reading the book or seeing the movie. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and finally this morning, last week we talked about My Name is Lucy Barton, but Michael, you got a chance to see it. Did you have anything to that you wanted to add to uh, last week's reviews? Uh, really not much of, of any worth other than to say that I love Laura Linney. She's mm, yeah. so amazing. She can do no wrong. She really is great. I did not uh, personally find this story itself that compelling. Uh, as far as the character and her relationship with her mother, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was boring, but it didn't seem to me that there was anything so extraordinary uh, that was necessarily, uh, that necessarily required a, a, a dramatic presentation. Uh, people I know who've read the book really loved it. So who knows, maybe it was more effective in that way. But if you're reading the book, you don't have Laura Libby. So, uh, so I guess, <laughs> Trade-offs. You know, I guess we have to take, you know, the good where we get it. Um, I'm so I'm very glad I saw it because I will go see her in anything. And I'm very happy about that. Uh, I also was reading um, something that was complete news to me, but I'm usually behind the curve on some things. So maybe everyone knew this, but me, uh, James Taylor, the great James Taylor 
has a new album coming out called American Standard, and it's got several show tunes on it, including You've Got to Be Taught from South Pacific, Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat from Guys and Dolls, Old Man River from Showboat, uh, The Surrey with the Fringe on top from Oklahoma. <laughs> Can you just Im- imagine James Taylor singing The Surrey with the Fringe on top? I can't wait to hear that. Um, and then I did see a little, there's a little preview uh, trailer, I guess you would call it, that they have out that I, I sent to James. Maybe he can put it in the show notes. Uh, and it, uh, it, it's, it sounds like something that I'm sure many of our listeners will want to have in their collection. Another song, um, I think the other uh, show tune I didn't mention is a song that has a, a very interesting history in itself. And I didn't even know this until I was reading up on it in conjunction with this. The song is called My Heart Stood Still. And it's by Rogers and Hart, which that I knew. But it was written for um, a Charles Cochran review in London called One Damn Thing After Another. And that show opened in London at the London Pavilion on May 19th, 1927. And then what happened was uh, everyone loved the song so much that Rodgers and Hart wanted to put it into their Broadway musical, The Connecticut Yankee, which opened later in 1927. But they had to buy back the rights from the producer. So that was the deal that they made then. And I I, uh, I think that ultimately it was good that they got the rights back. But that's a beautiful song that uh, that I really didn't know the provenance of it until I read these notes. So uh, thank you to Mr. Taylor for uh, for leading me to that. And the just what you can hear uh, in the preview in the little trailer is uh, it's certainly enough to to get me to want to get this album. So I think you may feel the same way. So the thing that I'm, uh, I'm wondering about is uh, with the uh, past in residence series that series at the L'Enfantin that was, has now mm. uh, passed. Right. Will this be revived and bring James Taylor to Broadway? Uh, mm. to do, uh, uh, you know, his own little in-residency, which would be great, you know? Well, that's an excellent thought that had not occurred to me and sounds absolutely perfect. It does. It, uh, so I'm looking on, uh, on YouTube. He is touring, um, and YouTube, um, now with, along with these videos, has all of his touring dates and, uh, He's got. Um, he, he's in support of this this uh, new American Standard album. It is all over the all over the United States and parts of Canada. So I wouldn't be surprised if there would be a stop in New York. I mean, although he seems very suited for Madison Square Garden, perhaps a smaller intimate show like Bruce Springsteen. Uh, had done or Yanni or Barry Manilow or somebody. You know, certainly larger. Uh, acts have certainly played Broadway yes. theaters. All right, so interesting. 
Okay, so uh, before we wrap up for the morning, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jennifer, Michael, and for me can be found found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today including all the James Taylor stuff and the videos that Michael sent over plus all the shows that we've talked about this morning and a uh, and the great um, New York Times article on Margot Lyon so check that out don't forget to get uh, Robbie Rizel's uh, 50, uh, Tuesdays at 54 Below. His last show is coming up uh, this Tuesday so get out there and support Robbie and also support our friends at the uh, Come From Away podcast called Welcome to the Rock, which is uh, sponsoring this week's uh, episode of This Week on Broadway. So on behalf of Genesis of Fox and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. I'll Bye. that star to ride. I love you a thousand times across the sky. Stand so near, my love. Graduations almost here, my love. Teach me.